California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know by now that there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that's simple and easy to work with. That's why I use Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it doesn't get any easier than this. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, come visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over and you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're new to this, they can get your show up and running for you. And with a free month to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? Okay, dreamers, first off, I want to thank you for your patience with me in getting the next numbered episode. It's coming. I am planning to have a guest come on the show for that case. I also have the September Patreon just about ready to go for those who are signed up for that. I want to remind you for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to nearly two dozen exclusive bonuses, episodes that are just like the free ones that you get on California Dreaming's feed each week, with a handful of episodes for those who support the show at the higher tiers. But everyone who joins is guaranteed one full-length bonus per month. This week, I'd like to thank Crystal, Meg B, Anna, Cerise R, I hope I said that right. It's spelled C-E-R-Y-S, Taz, and Ann S for joining Patreon, and Amber, Heather S, Sandra C, Brandy K, Christine S, Amy C, and Karen P for raising your support to the next level. Also, I usually save birthday shoutouts for the end of the show, but... I didn't include them last week, so I'm going to send some birthday wishes in this episode now. Marissa R., whose birthday was on September 2nd, Christy J. and Pat P. on the 3rd, Melanie W. on the 5th, DDJ and Cerise R. again, C-E-R-Y-S, I'm so sorry I'm messing up your name, on the 6th, Dave Weir and Marsha C. on the 8th. Happy birthday to each and every one of you. So this past week, the big news out of Oakland was the ghost ship fire verdicts, which several of you posted about in the group, and that is what we are going to discuss today. For this episode, I spoke to Abby, one of our dreamers from the Facebook group who wanted to share her thoughts on the verdict. So I'm going to play our conversation that we recorded over the weekend for you now. This call is being recorded. Last year on September 30th, we dropped episode number 63 entitled The Tale of the Ghost Ship Fire. And in the years since, there have been some developments in that story, and many of you have contacted me and posted in our Facebook group about it uh, this week. There have been some, there's been some big news involving the criminal prosecution of the master tenant of the ghost ship warehouse, David Almina, and his assistant, Max Harris. Because several of you posted in the group when the most recent news broke, I asked if anyone wanted to come on the show 
and discuss the case with me. And my idea was to hopefully find someone who might possibly be from the area, because I know this case has deeply affected not only the city of Oakland, but many of the surrounding communities as well. I was wanting to speak to someone who could bring their perspective, someone who could give us a feel for what it's been like since the fire from a more personal place. And I know that there are a couple of you who've been giving us some pretty regular updates, and I want to thank you guys for keeping us abreast to the developments in this story. And I also want to thank everyone who offered to chat with me about this, but I did find someone that I immediately felt like would be perfect to bring us some insight from a unique perspective. Now, she is not from the Oakland area, nor does she have any personal connections to this case. But what she does have is a personal story involving loss of life in a deadly fire that took place possibly into the evening of October 31st, 2014, into the early morning hours of November 1st, the following day. And it claimed the lives of six people in the city of Portland, Maine. She commented on my post and said that she had some thoughts to share. And I was like, perfect, let's do this. Let's talk about this fire and how they're connected. She contributed an article about the Portland fire in the Bangor Daily News a year after the tragedy. And I'm really pleased that she's been able to take some time out of her evening to speak to us about this case. Abby, thank you so much for being with me tonight. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how it is you found your way to California Dreaming, and why it is you wanted to speak to us about the ghost ship fire? Sure, yeah. Um, well, obviously, my name is Abby. Um, I live in Colorado right now. I was born and raised in Maine, um, and I lived in Portland, Maine for about four years, which is where uh, my personal story takes place. Um, but I became a fan of California Dreaming a little while ago. Um, I've been a fan for some time now, and mostly because, you know, I'm really interested in the true crime genre, and because I like the way the show is set up. I like the the narrative style and the fact that there's not a lot of, you know, extra bells and whistles. I'm not a huge fan of the, you know, music in the background or all these distracting sounds like some of the podcasts have. So I kind of like how it's just a straightforward setup. And I think that the stories um, really have a lot of detail in them that some of the other podcasts might be lacking in. So that's kind of what made me such a big fan of the show. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, you wanted to talk to us about the fire because of the experience that you had. And we're going to get all into that um, after I give you a synopsis of what our episode was about. So um, let me give a breakdown of the events from the time the fire happened to the verdict that just was rendered a couple days ago. Um, I got this timeline from an article by Oakland's um, local ABC affiliate. So on December 2nd, 2016, a fire broke out at approximately 11.20 p.m. during a concert that was being held at the Ghost Ship Warehouse. And it was a building that housed artists, but was not permitted for housing or being used as an entertainment venue. The fire began on the first floor and it trapped partygoers in the second floor. 
It took firefighters about five hours to extinguish the blaze. 36 people died, and it is the deadliest fire in Oakland history. The next day, um, people started taking a look at the master tenant. His name is Derek Almina. And um, after a Facebook post in which he commented, everything I worked so hard for is gone. I hope I called him Derek Almina. I might have accidentally called him David Almina earlier because that's my husband's name. (laughs) (laughs) His name is Derek Almina. Um, Although his Facebook post, people were scratching their heads because he didn't mention the victims of the fire. He talked about his work. So people are like, well, who is this guy and what is going on here? So then the following day after that, on December 4th, Alameda County District Attorney uh, Nancy O'Malley, she launched a criminal investigation into the fire. And later that day, they announced, it was announced that 36 victims were recovered from uh, the the burned out building. Um, The ABC News did track down Alameda and he did comment on the fire. He said, quote, they are my children, they are my friends, they are my family, they are my loved ones and my future. What else do I have to say? Uh, what all of that means, I really have no idea. I, I think he was probably nervous when um, he was being chased down by media. <laughs> so on the 7th, um, city officials claimed that building inspectors had not been inside the ghost ship warehouse in the past 30 years, but it was later revealed in the weeks prior to the fire that the planning and building department did go into the property after it received complaints about debris. The inspector was not able to get into the building and the city had issued some citations. Um, but on the 23rd, victim families of um, fire victims started filing lawsuits against the owners of the building, um, the primary tenant and the event promoter. Lawyers for Derek Almina claimed that the fire originated in an adjacent building and that he was not responsible for the blaze, which we now know isn't true. Documents released by the city of Oakland showed that several agencies, including the police department, visited the ghost ship warehouse 35 times in the months and years leading up to the deadly fire. So it was a known hazard. The city was aware of it, yet this continued to go on. Um, On March 14, 2017, Oakland Fire Chief Teresa Reed announced her retirement amid questions of inspection procedures and management following the ghost ship fire. Four days later, Oakland City Attorney's Office was criticized for not sharing a critical report prepared by the fire department about the fire with the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. Um, on March 24, 2017, the East Bay Times reported that the son of the building owner was aware of the electrical problems at the ghost ship fire two years prior to the at the ghost ship warehouse two years prior to the fire. And then six months after the fire, on June 5, 2017, Derek Amina and Max Harris were arrested and charged with felony involuntary manslaughter. The owner of the building was not charged in this case. So, um, let's see. At a preliminary hearing to determine whether or not Almina and Harris would stand trial took place on December 6, 2017. On December 14th, a judge ruled that the trial was going to move forward. Um, On July 3rd, 2018, a year and a half after the fire, prosecutors reached a plea deal 
Almina and Harris agreed to plead no contest to 36 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Almina would receive nine years in prison and Harris would receive six. Family members of the victims were very upset about this plea deal. They wanted 36 years, one year for every victim that perished in that fire. On August 10th, 2018, now this is about a month and a half before our episode on this dropped, the judge overseeing the case discarded the plea deal stating that Almina and Harris were not accepting full responsibility and remorse for the fire, and they were going to move forward with the trial, which was a critical move in this case. In a stunning move, um, it was a stunning move. Almina was was completely taken aback by this. Um, the men were facing criminal prosecutions over the deaths of these 36 people in the fire at this point. They were going to have a trial. Um, Max Harris's attorney wanted to sever his case from Derek Almina's, but that motion was denied. Um, and the trial date was set for the following spring. Um, let's see. The trial started April 30th of this year. Um, the prosecutors opened. It was a very emotional um, opening statement. They uh, talked about the 36 people who died, and they also presented the text messages that some of the victims were sending to their families before they died. On the 17th, during the trial, June 17th, 2019, Max Harris took the stand and he tried to minimize his role in the operations of the ghost ship, but he was later contradicted about a lot of his statements. Um, on July 8th, Derek Almina testified in his own defense and he admitted that there was electrical plumbing and carpentry work that was completed without the necessary permits. Um, testimony in the case officially ended on July 16th of 2019. Deliberations began July 31st. And six days later, on I'm sorry, um, a month later, a, a little more than a month later, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that went on with the jury and some of them were dismissed. Um, a month and a few days later, on September 5th, 2019, the jury in the ghost ship trial acquitted Max Harris on all 36 counts of involuntary manslaughter, and the judge declared a mistrial for Derek Almina after the jury was deadlocked 10 to 2. And Derek Almina will be back in court on October 5th for a new trial date to be set. So, before we discuss the verdict in this case, I want to talk about the Portland, Maine fire first. And I'm going to give you a quick factual background, and then I'm going to hand it over to Abby, and she could talk about her personal story when it comes to this fire over there in Portland. So the information on the Noyne Street fire, I gathered from the website of the attorney who represented the property owner of the home on Noyne Street that was destroyed in the fire, and his name is Gregory Nisbet. In the early morning hours of November 1st, 2014, a fire destroyed Nisbet's property and a subsequent investigation revealed that the cause of the fire was something that had been smoked that had not been properly or fully extinguished when it was discarded into a plastic container or a trash bin located on the front porch of the home. It was also revealed after the investigation that the portions of the structure, which was built 
1890 were not up to current codes, the hallways inside the structure were congested with personal belongings, I guess just random items that were just being stored there, and there was furniture throughout the house that had been situated in such a way that made it difficult to move freely throughout the various rooms of the home, and that smoke detectors were installed, but none of them were functioning. Now, this is very, like, reminiscent of the ghost ship, all of this furniture and things in the hallways and stuff like that. The fire quickly spread through the structure, and soon the entire place was engulfed. Six people perished in this blaze, 29-year-old Ashley Thomas, 27-year-old David Bragdon, 23-year-old Malisha Jackson, 25-year-old Christopher Conley, 26-year-old Nicole Finley, and 29-year-old Stephen Summers. In July of 2015, Greg Nisbet was indicted on six counts of manslaughter. The prosecution claimed that he caused the deaths through his reckless or negligent management of the property. He was also indicted on four misdemeanor counts of building code violations related to smoke alarms, stairway dimensions, and egress requirements, which is escape of alternate escape routes like windows and things like that. In September of 2016, an 11th count was added, an additional misdemeanor code violation alleging that an upper four bedroom window was too small to qualify as a secondary means of escape. The trial was a so-called bench trial with no jury, just the judge. And Justice Thomas Warren found Greg Nisbet not guilty on all 10 original charges, but found him guilty of the 11th count the window size code violation. There was no evidence that anyone attempted to use that window to escape or that the window caused a death, but the judge found that it was too small to comply with the modern code standards requiring an egress opening of 5.7 square feet. Though the window was destroyed in the fire, they relied on measurements of the charred opening, photographs from before the fire and, and witness testimony. Greg Nesbitt was sentenced to 90 days in jail and to pay $1,000 in fines. So he did appeal the verdict, and it went all the way to the main Supreme Court, but the court sided with the state and affirmed his conviction. He was ordered to serve his 90-day sentence, and he was released from jail on the fourth anniversary of the fire, October 31st, 2018. So, Abby... Tell us about your connection to this fire. Okay, um, I was a resident of Portland, Maine in the fall of 2014. Um, I lived in Portland until 2016. Um, and the first, the way it started for me was um, a friend of mine had said that there was gonna be you know, a big Halloween party at the Noise Street house. And she asked me to go with her. And that was supposed to occur the day after the fire occurred. So the way I found out about the fire was her calling me, you know, that morning and saying, hey, like, plans are off for tonight um, because there was a big fire and some people died and we don't know who right now. Um, so, you know, slowly throughout the day, we began to learn more information and kind of one by one through word of mouth, really, because the officials weren't saying anything. We found out um, the names of the people who were killed there. And the names 
that um, really brought me to my knees was Miles, um, whose given name is Chris Conley, but uh, who introduced himself to me anyway as Miles O. Smiles, and that is how everyone referred to him, which is what his preference was. Um, and, you know, as soon as she told me that, I tried to call him probably a hundred times, and I don't even know why, why I did that, but it just felt like something I should do because I didn't believe it. I didn't believe right. that that could happen. Um, so, you know, the news kind of came out slowly, and it was just like everything was in slow motion during that time. And immediately these questions start coming to mind. How did this happen? How could this have possibly happened? And, you know, we kind of learned over the preceding year that, that there, the fire was caused by an improperly discarded cigarette. But, you know, under normal circumstances, which smoke detectors are required by law for rental properties in the state of Maine, um, and they were present there, but they were not in functioning order. And why that is, we may never know, because we'll never know a lot of answers to the questions that we have about what happened. But there was no alarm for people inside of the home, most of whom were sleeping at that point in time, to be aware of the deadly threat that was lurking directly outside. So three of the deceased persons were found on the third floor of the home, which should not have been a rental area at all, according to um, according to the designation of a single family dwelling, which is what Nisbet's defense attorneys argued the home was. State prosecuting attorneys argued that it was a boarding home, um, mostly due to the rental agreement that went on there, which was that they didn't have a lease. He rented without contracts. They paid rent separately. And some of the tenants had locks on the outside of their doors. So it's um, my understanding it, that he was pretty lackadaisical when it came to renting to people. Like he didn't require a whole lot in terms of, you know, like you said, no contracts. He probably didn't do any credit checks. You know, it was he, and that's kind of why people like the guy because that's exactly was, right. Right. Absolutely. And it wasn't his own, his only um, rental property in Portland. He had other properties as well. So, you know, after everything happened, I spoke to some of the people who, who could still say, you know, that guy is my landlord and they were living unlike some of his other tenants. And, you know, I kind of asked them like, what is that like for you? I mean, are you just kind of in a state of shock right now? I mean, you have this extra element to this whole situation that I don't have because I'm in a state of shock too, but you're renting from this guy. So how does that feel for you? And they're just like, you know, I always thought he was a really nice guy, very hands-off, never really bugged us. He was just really cool about everything. And it seems like that's kind of, you know, how the guy was known. And I thought it was interesting when I was reading about the ghost ship fire, how there was a former tenant that lived there who said, you know, it's unfair to point fingers at, at Derek Almina because all that he ever did was try to create this safe space, this community for these artists, and it's unfair to point the blame at him, it, which I entirely disagree with. But that, that sentiment was kind of, kind of reminiscent of the sentiment in Portland regarding Nisbet from a few select people. 
you know, with that said, I would note also that the surviving tenants and those closest to the people who did not survive, who were living there or visiting there, feel differently. And they do feel very strongly that Nisbet bears a, a great amount of responsibility in the deaths of those humans, which, which is how I feel too. Right. But he wasn't held responsible. Literally. No, he was not held responsible. No, I mean, something that sticks with me um, forever, I'll, I'll never forget really, is that on November 1st, you know, because the 911 call came in at 7, 7 in the morning, and uh, I'm not sure at which time Nisbet was notified of the blaze, but it was shortly thereafter. It was the morning of November 1st. And at the time, he had been on his way to a tennis match on the coast of Maine, a few hours away from the blaze. And he continued on to his match where he arrived a little bit late. And he told whomever was there that he was sorry for being late. And the reason was that there was a fire at one of his rental properties and at least one person had died. And he proceeded to play his match. Wow. And finish playing this match. That can't look good. It didn't look good. And, you know, he, he speaks through his attorney now and he wants to express all of this remorse and regret, but ultimately, you know, it's too little too late. And the fact of the matter is that he was aware, just like the people, just like Almina and Harris were aware that these hazards existed and he did nothing to correct them. It was a hands-off approach and nobody held him accountable for that. And that's how we got here. And that's why I cannot understand the verdicts in both of these cases, because we've had an opportunity to make an example of these people. And it's my question, why do we have housing codes if, if we're not willing to hold accountable those who violate them? Because the consequence of violating the housing code while you have tenants renting at that property is unfortunately in these cases, the deaths of 36 people and the deaths of six people. So how many deaths does it take before we make an example of someone who knowingly and willfully failed to comply with the housing code? Well, to play devil's advocate in the case of the Portland fire, it, the, I don't know exactly why the judge ruled it wasn't his fault because he did have those code violations. But part of what might have played into it was the fact that the tenants smoked and didn't extinguish their own cigarette properly. You know? And that's true. And there's no denying that. Um, and I don't think anyone has tried to deny that. But what it comes down to is what happened after the cigarette was improperly discarded, which no one disputes. What happened after that is that there were people living on the third floor of the unit, which was an illegal dwelling, that the windows were not up to code for someone to escape in case of emergency, that there was no second fire escape because it was blocked by furniture and because there were no functioning smoke alarms in the home. So. All of those things are things that the property owner or property manager should have been on top of. And he wasn't on top of anything. 
it, this guy was just totally hands-off, you know, never in the picture. And it's true that people valued that about him at the time, but no one values that about him now. Right. I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't really um, formulated how I felt about these verdicts because to tell you the truth, I was kind of put off by the fact that the judge threw out the plea bargain in the ghost ship fire case. They had got their jail time, yet the family wasn't satisfied with that. And I mean, now look, look where we are now. We're with, oh, right now. with uh, somebody who's been completely exonerated of any responsibility for this and probably I don't know what's going to happen next. Derek Almina is going to be tried again. I mean, what do you think they could do differently to try to stick it to this guy who many feel has the blood of 36 people on his hands? How can it go differently? What, what do people need to know or see that this jury and you, the jury in the case that, that in, in Portland, Maine didn't see, Oh no, it was a judge. It was a bench trial. I mean, why? Why are these people, why doesn't everybody feel the way that you feel about this? The people that count, what are they, why are they dismissing responsibility here? That's, that's such a tough thing to put your finger on, to really pin down. Um, I think that a huge part of it, honestly, is the accountability of city officials in the entire trial and in the entire situation that we have here because those officials, in my opinion, are also culpable for this because these, because they went, they had the information that let them know that this place was not up to code, that it was virtually a death trap, which is a word that's been used repeatedly regarding the ghost ship. And ultimately it was an accurate term. Um, yeah, And, you know, in the aftermath, we've seen that repeated requests for the city records have been denied. Um, you know, city officials don't want to talk about it. And you have to ask, why is that? And I think the answer is very obvious, which is that they didn't really do their jobs. So in order to fully put all of the information forward, which relies on some of those records from the city, which... I wouldn't be surprised if there are some that have yet to be released. I mean, they were certainly reluctant at first, and some of those have come to light now, but I don't think that all of them have. And the reason for that is that really bringing the truth for light would require the city officials of Oakland to admit their own culpability, to admit their own failure in holding accountable um, not only Derek Almina, but also the landlord, who, well, the property owner. Um, right who's been like out of the picture this whole time. And I don't know if she just has excellent attorneys or what's going on with that, but it's mind boggling to me because she should be a part of it at the very least. You know, there are certainly criminal charges that could be brought there as well. Um, but the fact of the I matter have a, is- I have a feeling that she's gonna be on the hook for a civil case because she did collect insurance money. She got. I, I want to say like $3 million. I can't remember if it's 1.3 million it's or 3 million. Right. So I, I think they're going to, they're going to, they were waiting for the criminal trial to play out. Then the civil 
trial is going to come up next. The civil suits are going to come. They have to wait for this first. And now that the fact that uh, Derek Almina might be retried is going to prolong that process even more. So if if he isn't, I think they're really, they might do what happened to OJ. You know, he OJ Simpson was acquitted, but they got him in civil court. I don't think they've collected. I think, did you listen to Confronting OJ Simpson? Have you listened to the podcast? She has said they think about 1% that they've been able to collect, probably from that book that that he wrote called um, If I Did It. They own the rights, the Goldman's own the rights to that book, and they've been able to collect somewhat on the sale proceeds of that book. But I think that if that's where they're going to get them hard is financially, if nothing else. But I'm still bummed. I was kind of... I was really surprised at the verdict. I was really surprised when the judge threw out the plea deal, too. I'm Looking back in hindsight, I thought it was a mistake then. And um, now where we're at here with an acquittal, it's really sad for the families because they called for this. They they didn't want that plea deal. And And I can't imagine what it's like to be one of them. Yeah. where all of this has come through now. I know. It's really you know, sad. Because I'm sure that they wish they could go back to what it was before. And it's it's just painful for me to think about because I totally feel the pain that they feel. And I understand that their dispute with the original bargain was that it wasn't harsh enough. But here we are with an acquittal, you know, and I can't imagine how difficult it is to live with that reality, knowing what could have been and what isn't now for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to know more about your friend, Miles. Um, how did you know him? Tell us about your friendship and, and, and his loss. Okay, Um so <laughs> as with so many other things, so the way that I know Miles is really reminiscent of the ghost ship fire because Miles and I met each other through um, promoting for electronic concerts and shows. So we were both really into electronic music at that point in our lives. And um, I met Miles for the first time because he, uh, <laughs> we were friends on Facebook as a result of our work together promoting these shows. And he made a note that he needed a ride to some show or something later on. And I was like, I've never met you, but you can ride with me. Just come on over and we'll go together. Wow. And, <laughs> yeah. And like, there was a group of us. It wasn't just the two of us, but that was the first time I met him. And he, his Facebook name was Miles of Smiles, so I kind of thought when he got there that he would say a different name, but he didn't. He <laughs> sticks out his hand and he just says, a Miles of Smiles. <laughs> okay, it, well. Very his nice name is Christopher. His name is Christopher in the list of victims. Yes, that's uh, his given name is Christopher, Chris Conley. Um, so we worked really closely together on promoting for a lot of shows, basically, you know, we would attend the end of concerts like that we didn't have tickets to and give out handbills to people exiting and promoting, you know, the next show or whatever it was. 
Um, and at the time, I was working for a festival in upstate New York, which is called Camp Bisco. Pretty well known. Um, it's the festival of the band The Disco Biscuits. And as a result of my work with that production, I had a free ticket to the concert, um, well, to the three-day festival. And Miles, Miles didn't have the same contract that I had, so he didn't have that free ticket. And that whole summer, we were just plotting ways to get him there because it was really expensive to buy one. And we're just thinking of absolutely everything. And then at the last minute, his mom bought him a ticket to go. And I just always remember Miles talking about his mom all the time and saying, you know, what a wonderful person she was and, you know, how how he loved her so much and that she was just the best mom. And I've since told that to her. I do have a relationship with his mom now um, who I've met through these unfortunate circumstances because Miles was originally from Worcester, Massachusetts. So that's several hours away from Portland, um, and I don't believe I would have ever necessarily met Kathy if it hadn't been for this really tragic event. But I'm fortunate now to have this relationship with her where, you know, it's someone to turn to in both of our lives to just to say, you know, I'm thinking of him today, are you, like, and just talk about him. Um, and I'm blessed to have been able to tell her, you know, how much how he told people in his life how much he loved her. And Miles was just, you know, the the funnest person you could ever meet. And he just was so happy all the time. And that's why it's kind of funny that he picked this name for himself, Miles O Smiles, because it's it's so fitting. It's goofy, which he was, and it's happy, which he was all the time. Um, I've really never met anyone that positive ever. And it was just, you know, you felt so happy being around him. Uh, and he loved music. He loved music so much. And I'll always remember going to this show that it was Government Mule, which is kind of an older band. And there were a lot of older people at the show who were sitting in seats that they paid a lot of money for. But Miles was dancing around in the little space in front of those seats, uh, <laughs> right in front of the stage, kind of blocking their view, basically just, sorry about your bad luck, <laughs> and just having a great time, because that's who he was. I'm glad he's still in touch with his mom. She must have been devastated. She was, and I, I really can't relate to what this must be like for her, you know, because I know the pain that I feel, but it's something entirely different for her um, and her family. And and I've met those people. I did go to his funeral in Massachusetts um, at the time. A year or maybe two years later, there was a memorial service in Portland at the park that's around the corner from Noy Street. And now I went to the funeral, but I didn't talk to her personally when I was there. I just felt like I wanted to keep my distance and be respectful at the time. Um, so when I was at that memorial service a year or two later, she found me and she goes, you're Abby. And I was, yes, I am. And she <laughs> knew me because I had written those articles to the newspapers. And 
And that meant so much to me because what it really meant was that it meant something to her when I wrote those. Right. So she ended up taking all of my old friends out to the restaurant that um, was around the corner. It's called Great Lost Bear. And she said, you can thank Miles for this because his tax return is paying for it. (laughs) (laughs) So it was sad, but it was good. And it was just like really nice to get together with everybody who has been through this whole thing. And, you know, there's no one else in the world who really knows what it feels like except for those people. Right, right. Tell us about the article that you wrote. Uh, It was a really great article. Really good. Thank you. Um, I wrote that on the first anniversary of the fire, mostly because I I always, I feel so compelled to say something or do something, and there's nothing that you really can do or can say. I mean, we're coming up on the fifth anniversary now, and I can't write an article every year saying the same thing, but what I wanted to say was, because I feel like we missed an opportunity here. Like the the trial hadn't been concluded at that time, but in retrospect, anyway, I feel like we missed an opportunity because there could have been a legal precedent set here where Nisbet actually had the hammer come down on him for failing to maintain his properties. Um, And that didn't really happen, but even before the trial for Nisbet took place or anything, the Portland city officials were stepping up their game in terms of inspections and writing violations and making it known that, that we are watching you and this stuff matters. So that was kind of my point in the letter to the editor that I wrote was that, you know, the officials are paying attention and, you know, on that same note, um, don't throw cigarettes away carelessly and, What I don't want to do at at all in any way is place the blame on whomever discarded the cigarette because it has truly nothing to do with this. If it had been a home that was up to code, then there could have been an entirely different outcome. It's extremely likely that there would have been an entirely different outcome because people would have been alerted to the fire and they would have had a way to escape from it. So... I say, I say it with hesitation that, you know, putting it in the paper, maybe someone will read it and think twice that about how they discard their cigarette because improperly discarded cigarettes are the number one cause of accidental fires in this country. So if anybody reads that and thinks twice before they just, you know, flick it someplace next time, then, then that's my goal really. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, my next goal is to make the other landlords who aren't paying attention to their property a little bit nervous because they should be because who really wants to be that person after a tragedy like this occurs, you know, never mind the fact that six people died, but Nisbet's life is over too. You know, nothing good is happening for him from here on out. So I wanted to make those points and do you think you know, that, down. I mean, he wasn't really, given that much time and he wasn't convicted or held accountable for the six lives. I mean, if people are looking at that fire and Oakland and they're like, well, I can run this. I can, I can be the landlord of this ramshackle place. That's all in violation, you know, up and down. And there's not going to be any consequences. 
So why should I even bother, you know? Why should I even bother with it? Because they're, they're off the hook. I mean, do you think that, that do, have you felt like there's been change in Portland? Um, not, not really. You know, I feel like it was short lived. There was kind of like this burst of energy from city officials and what they did was, you know, um, a spree of inspections, basically. They went around and they did all these inspections and they made this list of violations and all the people who uh, have things to change or, you know, correct, whatever. And I never heard that they acted on any of that. I never heard that any properties were shuttered or fined or that anybody was evicted because they can't live there anymore because the building is not up to code. Even though I did hear that they found 72 separate dwellings that were not up to code, never heard a word about anybody being forced to leave those places. So I feel like it was kind of just, you know, it, it was halfway basically. And a lot of that could have been done better. And what's really disappointing to me is, in both cases, is when you look at the legal definition of involuntary manslaughter, which is the charge that both of these people were facing, that all three of these people were facing, it's the unlawful killing of another person committed without intent to kill, but with criminal recklessness or negligence. And what could better fit the bill than that Right. for what really happened? So when we had this opportunity to make an example of someone and actually prevent tragedies in the future by making those landlords who are in compliance a little bit nervous and causing them to act on their code violations, and we miss it. We just blow it. You know, the guy wasn't convicted. He He's out and about living like a free man right now. And it's so offensive to absolutely everybody who uh, who knew the people who perished and who will never be the same for not having them in their life anymore. Is Nisbet still a landlord? I do not believe so. I believe that all of his properties were seized as um, as he was convicted in civil court of I'm not sure what he was convicted of, but I know that he has agreed to pay $300,000 to the victim's family, and so he has declared bankruptcy over this whole thing, pretty much. So his properties were seized as a result of the financial ruin that he suffered because of all of this. So he's not currently renting to anyone, but I also don't think that the guy is living under a bridge or anything like that. He had assets and he, I mean, I don't know anybody who actually got any money from him. I just know that the properties were seized because of the agreement in civil court. Okay. So it was played out in civil court. It did. Yeah. And $300,000 to the victims of the families when there's six of them is, you know, nothing spectacular, but it doesn't really matter to any of them because it doesn't change a single thing. What would have really mattered to them is if the guy, you know, spent some real time behind bars. And I do have to applaud the judge for, at the very least, sentencing the landlord to any time at all behind bars because it's so highly unusual for a misdemeanor code violation. It's almost unheard of. 
So I'm glad that it happened at the very least, but I do think that what he has been proven to be guilty of was worthy of a more harsh sentence. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what his reasoning for finding him not guilty of the involuntary manslaughter, because like you said, that seems to be the proper charge for what happened. I mean, why is this law or this charge on the books if you have a case that it seems to perfectly fit and you don't convict of it? I don't see. Absolutely. It doesn't make any sense to me. No, and part of it was the, uh, the dispute around what kind of a dwelling it was. So the defense contended that it was a single-family residence. And they even said things like, oh, the people who lived there were like a family. And that might be true, but it's certainly not, you know, a legal assessment of the relationships of those people who, none of whom had contracts and people came and went. And it was kind of just like that. Very similar to the ghost ship, honestly. And Portland has a huge problem with affordable housing. So that's kind of how we got in this boat which is where it turns the definition of what kind of a housing unit that is into a boarding house, which is exactly what the state alleged in their case against him. And in doing so also, you know, put culpability on him for, you know, on, on Nisbet's attorney's website, he defined the property as an apartment and I changed it because I was actually kind of confused as to what exactly this living situation was. It, I, from the looks of it, it looked like a big house. But when I read that it was an apartment, I was like, huh, she didn't say apartment. It was this property. So I just said property because I didn't know exactly the layout and how these people ended up in there. But it was like you said, like kind of like the ghost ship, these spaces were rented. Exactly. Exactly right. And I don't know if anyone's ever really going to know like what the correct term would be here Um, because it was just so lax like that. It was just so casual. People came and went. I mean, he wasn't even totally aware all of the time uh, of who was there because it was just, you know, as long as the money was coming in, then whatever, anything goes. That was really all the guy cared about. So, I mean... He had, there were people living on the third floor of the house, which was never supposed to have occurred. And Is that like an attic? It, yeah, it was not a full-size floor. So it was like an attic. Um, I haven't been up there before, so I don't totally know, but it wasn't a full-size floor. And people were, you know, sleeping there every night on a daily basis. Uh, people who claim that place as their address. So the home is officially classified, to my knowledge, as a duplex. So, like, two apartments in this building um, is what I believe that to mean anyway. And that's certainly not how it played out in reality, whereas there were at least 10 permanent residents at the time of the fire. Um, So seven of whom escaped and three of whom perished, as well as three visitors who also perished. Okay, so... The three of the people resided. So Christopher lived there. I mean, Miles. He did not actually live there. He was a visitor. Oh, okay. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's very, talking to you is very eerie how this jumped out at you when I said, I need to talk to somebody about this because I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't really, like I said, formulated how I felt about it. I wasn't sure. I, I think I was surprised and disappointed, but beyond that, I was didn't know what to make of it. And I, I can see how this connection was made with you and the ghost ship fire and this fire and how it, brought out all of these feelings about what happened to your friend five years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the similarities between these two cases are just mind boggling. They really are. And that's why it's so tragic to me that neither case resulted in a true sentence for any of the people who were responsible for bringing the conditions to life that caused the deaths of these many people because we are almost definitely going to see something in the future that is also, you know, a direct reflection of the Noise Street fire and of the ghost ship fire and how many deaths does it take? I just don't understand why when we have a perfect example of the actual legal definition of involuntary manslaughter that nothing is done with that. And that's why, I mean, it truly, truly upsets me that that we can't make any progress with the ghost ship fire because 36 people died, and we have a hung jury and an acquittal on that. Maybe they felt like this was nothing more than a tragic accident, if nothing else. The key words are negligent and reckless and there have been so many accounts of people who stated that Almino was perfectly aware of the bad electrical wiring and that he didn't care the actual electrician who did work at the ghost ship is the one who is quoted as saying that that he was told about the faulty wiring and that he didn't care and there are Beyond that, there's so many other people, former tenants, former visitors to the ghost ship, who have also said, you know, he he knew about these problems. And beyond that, city officials who contacted the guy and who contacted the owner of the building and all of these violations and documented reports of, of violations, and nothing was done. So that's when it comes down to negligence and, and reckless negligence at that because when you're totally aware and nothing is done and then 36 people die, how is that not something that should be brought to light and someone should be held accountable for it? Beyond that, I think the city of Oakland is tragically embarrassed because they too are responsible for not holding accountable. You know, you write a ticket, but if no one pays it, I mean, I guess that's just okay. How, what's the point of the housing code if we don't enforce it? Why do we have it? Right. Those are the hard questions. I don't know if they're ever going to be answered. Yeah, I think you're right. Oakland probably doesn't want to acknowledge it. And I think that that's one of the major blockades in the conviction of Amina and 
you know, one of the major contributors to the acquittal of Harris is that the, I mean, it's in the city of Oakland's best interest for both of those things to happen because they're culpable too. It requires releasing the documentation that says the city of Oakland knew just as well as these two did and nobody did anything. The city didn't do anything and Almina didn't do anything and Harris didn't do anything. Right. And that's how we got here. And you know, it's it's tragic and it's embarrassing, but the fact that people are still trying to save face over it. That's is, interesting. I hadn't thought that, that it, this might be political. I do think that it is partially. I, I think that it's being swept under the rug in a large way because it's, it's not, you know, appealing for a jury to hear that. We're bordering on conspiracy theories here, but for me, it's really just common sense. You have to look at what evidence could be presented to the jury and what evidence, you know, they had to tear those <laughs> reports of housing violations. Like they were not released willingly, you know, yeah. it was, it's supposed to be handed over the counter. Like that's routine stuff. It's not classified or anything like that. And nobody could get those documents for months and months. And record releases were being denied repeatedly um, and multiple newspapers in the area were reporting on that and how it was frustrating and quite unusual that those requests were being denied and you know you gotta read between the lines sometimes and that's that's my opinion is that it's an embarrassment to the city of Oakland and they are as culpable as these two are and I feel the same way about Portland too you know, the city of Oakland has a website for the firefighter department, which proudly states that all properties are inspected at least once annually. And as we know, that's just not true. So it's kind of embarrassing to be caught up in the middle of this when you just didn't do your job. And 36 people are dead now. Well, um, Thank you so much for talking to me about this. You gave me a lot to think about here. I hadn't. I'm glad. I hadn't really. Actually, the verdict just hadn't really sunk in for me. I've been kind of distracted and busy trying to get some of the other work done on the show. But I really appreciate you helping me fill in some time here <laughs> with this episode because I'm going to put this out um, in the next couple of days. I don't want to put it in place of the next episode that's supposed to be coming out on Tuesday, which I'm probably going to be behind on per usual, but um, <laughs> thank you. Thanks for helping me with this and sharing your, uh, about your friend, Chris, Christopher miles of smiles. And um, <laughs> I'm sorry about your loss in that. Yeah. Um, you know, I really feel like I've said my piece and I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to come on and kind of share my perspective on this at least. Um, and it really means a lot to me to be able to talk about the North street fire again. Um, and, and remind people that it happened, um, and that, you know, those people were so loved and that we miss them so much. Um, so it means a lot to me to be able to say that and, I'm really uh, happy to have been able to speak with you. Oh, me too. And thank you. And we do have a couple of listeners I know from Maine. And um, 
and not very many, but there are a couple in the group who, who probably know about this story. So um, I'll post your article in the group, and um, as soon as this goes up, and so everyone can see and share and know the victims of that fire as well. So thank you. Thanks uh, for talking with me. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Roseanne. Sure. I would like to thank Abby one more time for speaking to me about the ghost ship case and for sharing your personal story with us. And that's going to bring this update episode of California Dreaming to a close. I would like to encourage you to come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there that we discuss the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcast that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news. We post about our pets. We post funny memes. So come on over and share. You can also go to the show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or a recommendation for California Dreaming. And you can also follow us on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. There are a couple of new California Dreaming designs. You can get coffee mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, all sorts of stuff to represent your favorite true crime podcast. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. Hey, Wendy, what you listening to? Oh, hey, Beth. I've just become obsessed with true crime. But I am wondering, you know, you being the OG of true crime and everything, if there are any true crime stories out there about people of color or minorities. There are. I'm obsessed with true crime, too. And it's true. Not all serial killers are white dudes. Get out of here. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's right. Not all serial killers are white. Or, get this, even dudes. Stop. And you know what? Fruit Loose Serial Killers of Color is a podcast all about them. That's right. We take deep dives into the lives and crimes of people of color and their victims that the news leaves out because, well, the news is racist. Allegedly. Ever heard of Swift Runner? The Dating Game Killer? The Taco Bell Strangler? Or La Matavejitas? Well, if you want to hear about them and other true crime stories about people of color, women, LGBTQ, and any other minorities, then listen and subscribe to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color wherever you get your podcasts. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Mm -hmm. New episodes drop every Thursday, so look alive, guys. It's crazy out there.